Now, it had been 750 years since they had a country to call their own. 750 years of being ruled over by someone else's king in someone else's kingdom. And in that span of time, living as refugees and second-class citizens, well, they had always held on to this hope. It wasn't a hope just merely based on wishful thinking, but it was a hope that was based in what they had been reading. Their Jewish scriptures prophesied of a coming king who would rule perfectly, who would have absolute power, whom the whole world would be forced to recognize. He would establish his kingdom of peace, and he would reign forever. And in their scriptures, well, he was given many names, but they would just simply refer to him as Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And there were those who thought that the wait may be over. For in the last three years, the stories had been building There was talk of a man who had been healing people. He had been casting out demons. He made a dead guy come back to life. And when he told the wind and the waves to stop, they actually obeyed him. He spoke with such authority that even the religious scholars couldn't refute him on scripture. And the rumor was that this man, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, there were two camps of people. Some thought that this was the dumbest move he could possibly make because he he was hated in Jerusalem. In fact, even his own disciples, that he was crazy for going to Jerusalem because they were people there that were dead set on killing him. But the other camp of people Well, they assumed this to be a brilliant, strategic move. Oh, assert your rule with your opposition when and where they would least expect it. That's why he'd be coming to Jerusalem, they thought. And it was this camp of people that would go out and they would meet him as he was on his way to the city. We will often call this scene the triumphal entry. Maybe it's labeled that way in your own Bibles. It's found at least one of the places in Matthew chapter 21. I'll begin reading in verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them out over the road. Now, these were things that you would normally do for royalty. This was them declaring him to be king before he was even crowned. And they may have been right to do so, but as we'll see, well, they would do it for all the wrong reasons. And so it goes on and it says, Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And for them, 
this wasn't all, this wasn't so much of an unusual scene. For in that time and throughout history, when a victorious king would return maybe from battle, the citizens of the kingdom would go out to meet him while he was still a ways off, and they would then escort him through the city gates in this parade-like fashion. And the king would then normally head to the, the prestigious temple of the city, and he would make a sacrificial offering there for whatever gods that they may worship. And so Jesus was following suit. But as usual, well, he's going to add his own sort of flair. His timing was impeccable. It was the beginning of the Passover holiday when the Jewish people would commemorate the time when God had freed them from the evil Egyptian empire. And now with each year passing, residing in, and then being oppressed by what they considered to be a evil Roman empire, well, they wondered if God could do it once again. And tensions would have run high as Jerusalem would have swelled to five or six times its normal population in just this week. Rome would send extra soldiers into the city to to patrol with orders to immediately squash any kind of Jewish uprising that could possibly be brewing. And it's why there was so much hype being built up along this parade route. The people, well, they were preparing for a showdown. They assumed that Jesus was marching into town to challenge Rome, which would have made their initial sighting of him a little bit of a peculiar one. He didn't even appear to be wearing any armor. He didn't carry a weapon. His army was a group of 12 ragtag-looking guys called disciples that also did not really seem too imposing. And his mode of transportation wouldn't have exactly stricken fear into the hearts of his enemies. Oh, he sat tall and regal upon a donkey. You ever had someone riding towards you on a donkey and thought, oh my, here comes greatness. (laughs) I better step aside. There's a donkey coming through. Now in Old Testament times, you know, riding on a donkey may may have been semi-respectable for an important person. But by the time the New Testament rolls around, oh, if you were somebody, you were seated upon a horse. And a king's horse, no doubt, would always be the the most majestic, the grandest looking animal in all the land. I mean, it would have helped if Jesus was at least riding a, a good, you know, strong looking donkey. But he wasn't. We're told that it was even a donkey's colt. 
Jesus came riding into town on a small, weak-looking donkey. You know, if we were to imagine this in our own context, it would, we might picture the president of the United States riding into town on a moped. <laughs> meep, meep. <laughs> Not exactly real inspiring, is it? And as any king returning to the city would often do, Jesus then, in your Bibles, he makes his way to the temple. And rather than conducting himself, maybe in the usual dignified manner of a king, will he instead, oh, he causes quite a ruckus. And he challenges the religious status quo there at the temples. Following along, if you're... If you are in verse 12, it says that Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, I've never really liked the imagery of an angry God. But I love an angry Jesus. <laughs> you know, in our Christian culture, we sometimes, I think, try to, to wussify Jesus just a little bit. And so I, I love to see just like the manly fire come out in the pages of Scripture. I, I love to see his passion for justice, and in this case, his outrage people would be kept from God. See, the temple priests, they had created a bit of a barrier with the people. Because this temple was still operating, of course, under the sacrificial system. And so someone would come to the temple and they would offer and sacrifice in order to be forgiven of sin and then reconciled to God. And well, the priests, they realized that if they just raised the prices of the animals being sold, well, <laughs> there was a lot of money to be made there. And so I'm sure they took their cue from the ancient amusement parks and they posted signs that at the, at the entrance there, just as they would do, they would read, of course, no outside food or drink. Only the temple instead read, no outside animals for sacrifice. Oh, if you were going to be into the temple, you were going to have to pay their prices. And their mindset, well, it stood opposed to Jesus' very purpose, not only in coming to Jerusalem, but even just coming to earth. Jesus came to reunite people to God. There's always seemed to be some barriers, right? In the temple, it was the pricing. And there was also all the, the rules that a lot of people even today still like to make up. 
Sometimes there is the expectations that maybe we feel, you know, we have to live up to with God. And overarching all of that is our continual struggle with sin. Sin has always put us at odds with God because sin cannot remain in the presence of a holy God. You know, it was actually the worst consequence that Adam and Eve faced way back when they fell into sin back in Genesis chapter 3. We covered it at the beginning of the series. As a result, they were told that they were eventually going to die. They'd have to work for their food. Life was going to get tough. Childbearing was going to become painful. But the worst part of all of it was that they got the boots from the Garden of Eden and could no longer live in perfect unity as they had enjoyed with God. But Jesus came to change that to reunite people to God. In fact, it was fitting that day what the crowds shouted towards Jesus. The translation that I have, which we'll normally read from the New Living, it just simply says, praise God. But a lot of other translations, you may have one, it'll use their literal wording. They chanted, Hosanna! which was a Hebrew expression that meant, save us. You see, the people knew that they need saving, but they didn't quite know what they needed saving. See, they thought that if their external circumstances were just changed, well, then life would get fixed. But Jesus, of course, didn't come to only treat the symptoms of life, to be sort of a band-aid. He came to provide a complete healing, to restore man's relationship with God that was lost as a result of sin. And so we know now what they didn't exactly know then, which is what, what they really needed saving from, was themselves. Because they would never reach true eternal life, the kind that the Bible speaks of, by their own efforts. Or even by having maybe their, their wildest dreams come true. Sometimes I think that we can even do the same. Sometimes we will so badly want God to change our conditions, right, without maybe changing us. And I do believe that God hears and he cares so deeply for all of our troubles. But yet he cares for our eternal souls the most. And I think it's apparent even in the way in which he came. We'll take a look at it in your notes. The first thing that we'll notice is that Jesus came humbly. You know, the way in which he entered into Jerusalem was indicative of the way that he lived his entire life. Throughout his ministry, he would prove 
to have the, the power and the authority of Almighty God. And yet, isn't it amazing that it's for the most part the social outcasts of that society that were the most comfortable with him? It was the most notorious sinners the tax collectors, the prostitutes that seem to be the most ease with Jesus. And it's because his humility made him approachable. There's an amazing uh, little verse. It's probably in your notes there, Ephesians 3.12. It says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. He has made himself approachable. When my kids were real little, we would make each year the usual pilgrimage. Every Christmas season, we would pack them into the car and we would travel to that North Pole scene conveniently located in the Rogue Valley Mall. You know the one? And we would fight our way through all those savage shoppers. And eventually, the crowd of people would part. And my little kids would get their first glimpse of that winter wonderland. You know, the fuzzy snow, the big presents, the few decorated trees that stood along the red carpet that would lead you up to that colorful building with the signage on top that read his workshop. And I remember that each time they saw Santa, oh, they would just freeze. Eyes wide and in awe that it was really him. And so it was really fun each year. We got to make the same invitation. Would you like to go see Santa? Oh, they just shake their heads. <laughs> no, they loved seeing Santa from afar, but they were way too shy to ever think about approaching him. And I love that God, through Jesus, has taken all of that intimidation away. In fact, everything in Jesus' life was done in such a manner to welcome us to him. God wasn't content that we would only just know of him or that we would experience him maybe from afar. His desire is to once again establish and develop a relationship with his creation with his people. And so Jesus' humility makes way for relationship. It's his reason for coming here to earth. And he did so in the least intimidating, most approachable way possible. I mean, think about this with me. Just his humble beginnings of all the ways for God to come. He chose to come as a baby. And he was born into a pretty scandalous situation, you know, 
virgin birth and all. <laughs> he was born into poverty in a barn, laid in an animal's food trough. And the distinguished guests that were invited to visit the newborn baby savior were shepherds. Which at the time, understand, they were like the lowest rung of society. God wanted everyone, no matter their status or circumstances, no matter their sin or their past, he wanted everyone to feel that they belonged in the presence of Jesus. You know, when I uh, became interested in my wife and I began to pursue her, I finally <laughs> mustered up the courage to ask her out. And she said no. But I pursued her even still until she answered correctly. And I pursued her with my love in our dating relationship until I felt that I had finally, you know, really captured her heart. And it was then that I asked her to spend the rest of her life with me. And when I did this, well, I knew better than to send my mom. Might have been weird. And I didn't send a friend. Nor did I write the question on a cutely folded piece of paper with a couple of check boxes that answered yes or no. Because when it comes to love, well, we know. You've got to go yourself. And that is God's story. He pursues us with his love and he pursues us with his love. And maybe we've said no, but yet he continues to pursue and it wasn't enough for him to just send an angel or maybe the prophets or anyone else because in issues of love, well, you got to go yourself. And so Jesus came to be with us, giving us access to God and pursuing us in relationship. Another way that we see Jesus come is he came peacefully. When we reflect upon that whole triumphal entry scene, not only do we see Jesus display the image there of a peaceful king, but Luke, in his account of the story, also tells us this in uh, verse 41 of Luke 19. He says, but as he, Jesus, came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. And Jesus wasn't just referring to a political peace or the peace that we might experience among one another, even though God might want us to experience that. Jesus was ultimately referring to being at peace with God. We will always feel unrest in our souls so long as we know that we are not right with God. Just as it is between two people when maybe one has sinned against another and there becomes this division between the two, 
Will our souls feel such division between us and God when we have sin against him? And so Jesus has made peace with God on our behalf because he offers us forgiveness and not condemnation. There's perhaps no greater example of this than we find in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we're told of this woman who had gotten caught up in a a shameful, soul-wrecking kind of situation. And we're not told how it came to be, how long she had been seeing this other man, or the backstory of how she might have progressively grown more and more distant from her husband, and how she had developed more and more reasons to justify this affair. Oh, when she walked down the aisle so many years ago, she never could have dreamed herself being entangled in a situation like this. And again, in there, we're not told. But I would imagine that it had to have been going on for quite some time. That the husband had suspected for a while and was able to connect some of those dots of who, when, where. He and the religious leaders were looking for some leverage against Jesus. Well, they knew just what door to knock on. Jesus had been teaching this crowd of people and the religious leaders, oh, they hate it. They hated it that he was able to draw such a crowd. And so in John chapter 8, verse 3, they brought this woman to him. And it says that they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the very of adultery. The law of Moses, come on, you know, the law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? Now the Bible tells us that their motive there is to disprove Jesus to that crowd. And they were right about the Old Testament law. And they had watched Jesus long enough to know that he was always quick to show compassion. And so they thought, well, maybe they could get Jesus to contradict the law by showing mercy when everyone there would have known that this kind of woman didn't deserve to be let off the hook. She was overcome with terror as she watched some of the people in that crowd begin to pick up some rocks up off from the ground and they hid them in their palm of their hands and just awaited Jesus' orders. But Jesus threw them a curveball and he said nothing. He just began to crouch down and he began writing things in the dirt with his fingers. And let me tell you, this is one that I'm going to have to ask about later on because we're not told what in the world he was writing in the dirt. 
But he did it twice, both, it would seem, sort of in dramatic fashion. And regardless of whatever it was that he wrote or he drew, the effect was that everyone's attention was pulled away from this woman and her sin and instead focused right there on Jesus. And he has that same kind of effect in our lives as well. For the closer that we draw to Jesus, the more we realize that he has become the focus of our sin. That through our faith in him, we can have peace with God because we've received forgiveness. And in that story, Jesus, at the end there, he would recite those now famous words, which I imagine him delivering a little bit like Clint Eastwood. Let anyone who's without sin throw the first stone. Go ahead, make my day. <laughs> and one by one, those holding stones in their hands begin to slip out from the crowd until there was no one left. And Jesus then said, well, I guess there's no one left here to accuse you. Neither do I. So go and sin. Whereas it would have normally been a foregone conclusion that her sin would lead to death. Jesus provided another way. She found no condemnation, but only forgiveness and peace. Romans 5.1 tells us this, that since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. You can also write this down in your notes, that Jesus came resolutely. There's a great little verse back in Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And this verse actually takes place quite a while before the triumphal entry scene. But it proves what Jesus was determined to do. In Luke 9.51, it says that as the time drew near for Jesus to ascend to heaven... He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It's a great statement because we would see in there that he would not be detoured from his purpose at hand. Even though there were many that would try to, to sidetrack him, even his own disciples, because they never fully understood his end game while he was still alive. But God had always purposed him to go to, the to go to the cross. And throughout the Bible story, we see God orchestrating all of these events just in order to get him there. In fact, we even see such orchestration in our triumphal entry story. Of course, if you can imagine, it's quite a scene the palm branches being laid down, the chanting of the crowd, the escorts that Jesus had going into the city riding on a donkey. But it's not like this was just a spontaneous event. 
God had been putting pieces together leading up to this very moment. And we read of one of those pieces in the beginning of Matthew 21. In verse 1, the chapter begins like this by saying that as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them back to me. Oh yeah, if anyone asks, just say the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. (laughs) Now this goes down as the first donkey jacking in history. (laughs) And maybe even the only one. I don't know. And I wonder if these two disciples that Jesus had sent were at all skeptical of the plan. Wait, what? You want us to steal a donkey? Are we being tested here? And I I don't know why, but whenever I used to read through this story, I always pictured this to be like a Jedi mind trick that the two disciples would perform. You know, like, you'll let us take your donkey. Why don't you take my donkey? And as I was reading over this, this last week, it it suddenly dawned on me that there had to have been an amazing backstory there. Because if you are the owner of a donkey, which was very valuable back then, you didn't just let a stranger walk off with it. It'd be like a complete stranger coming up to you and saying, uh, yeah, I'm going to need your car. (laughs) Excuse me? Uh, Yeah, well, you see, I've been following this guy, and he says that he needs your car. But, oh, don't worry. It's legit because he was able to tell me that your car would be in this parking lot in this very spot. How's that going to go over with you? Jesus obviously knew who this owner would be. And I think that chances are good that God had been preparing this man for this moment for quite some time. My guess is that he was a follower of God and he probably had been convinced that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And I bet that God had been prompting his heart for quite some time in some way to give towards Jesus' ministry. So by the time that some two awkward strangers approaches him and say, hey, uh, yeah, we're going to need your donkey. It's for Jesus. This dude's probably just ecstatic that finally his resources can be used for God in some way. My guess is that God had been working behind the scenes to make all of that possible. And his disciples probably never even knew it. I mean, those two guys probably walked off with a couple of donkeys in hand going, can you believe this guy just let us walk off with his donkeys? How did Jesus know? 
And God has probably done some similar things in our own lives. We may not have realized it then, but we can look back now on events or maybe experiences, whether they were good or bad, and see how God may have been using them to get us to the very place where we are now, whether that be physically or spiritually. And you know, he's been doing that same thing all throughout history. It's what we've been looking at throughout this sermon series, a long story short. And we have seen God working throughout Scripture towards the day that Jesus would be placed on a cross for our sins. It was the reason that way back when, in the very beginning, we see that God would establish community with his people. It was the reason that he would reveal himself a little later on through the law and and all the commandments. It's why he would make those covenant promises that we see him make. We looked at Abraham and why he would give all of those prophets visions for the future. It's all been for the purpose of giving us Jesus. And it's why Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I've come. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. He is the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem us. And he did so by placing himself upon a cross. And when Jesus allowed himself to be put to death, he carried with him the weight of all of our sin. And rather than carrying on all of those animal sacrifices that would take place at the temple there to to sort of semi-pay for the death penalty that our sin deserves, Jesus provided himself as a perfect And holy sacrifice, the kind that only needs to be made once. So that by placing our faith in him as savior, we are saved. Hosanna. And as a result, God would no longer see a sinful soul in us. But instead, he sees Jesus within us. And he has made peace with God on our behalf and restored relationship with him. That is the gospel message that we believe. It's a gospel message that we even celebrate every week and we do that through communion. After the triumphal story, Jesus And his disciples, they would eat of the Passover meal with one another. And all the Jewish people would actually do so on that night. And after, or in fact during that meal, Jesus would institute communion. And he says, 
do this, to always be reminded of the sacrifice that I will make for you. And so we'll do that this morning. The band will come up. And we're reminded just through a little piece of bread and some juice of Jesus' body and his blood that he gave for us. In Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, it says, after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant. Did you catch that? The new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The old covenant between God and his people was based on laws and rules to keep. And it was to reveal God's standards of holy. You keep the law, and you'd be right with God. But of course, the people soon found that God's perfect standards were impossible to keep. And it made them realize their need for a Savior. That's why they'd cry, Hosanna, God, save us. And God has responded with a new covenant. And his new covenant isn't about growing better through laws. It's about growing deeper through relationship. It's why in Hebrews 10, 16, it would speak of a new covenant being placed within our hearts. It's why in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul would speak of this new covenant as being one of spirit. And so if you find this morning unrest in your souls, we'll rest assured that Jesus has made peace with God. And we have that by believing in his redeeming sacrifice. And if you have never entered into or maybe ever grown in a relationship with God, maybe today during this time of communion, as you would be reminded, maybe today would be your day of salvation. Where you would take those two elements, if you so choose to do so, the bread and the, the juice, and you would be reminded of the sacrifice that he's made. And by so doing, you would be reminded of the way in which he has pursued you. And maybe today, you would commit to living the rest of your life with him in relationship, doing life together. Man, if that is you this morning, um, we would love to talk with you. You can, of course, come up and you can do that with me, but we also have some people um, in the back there that love to pray and talk with you. And so you can do that this morning. I want to pray for us, and then I'll dismiss you. We're going to do one last song, but you can take communion on your own this morning and be reminded in the way in which Jesus came. He's made himself approachable, humble, 
to make way for relationship and to make peace with God. Lord, thank you. We thank you that you have made this new covenant with us. Lord, we thank you not only for your death on a cross, which took care of our issue of sin, but just as we sang about earlier, Lord, that you rose to new life so that we may have new life in you. As many of us would maybe make a commitment, renew a commitment, thank you for the commitment to you, God. I pray, Lord, that as we would walk out of these doors this morning, that you would renew us with life. Oh, the joy of following you, God. Thank you that you are our example, that you go before us. May we follow you even more and more, we pray in your name.